All right, let's open up in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 is where we find ourselves. The title of this message is Woe, Dude. Uh, Because there's seven woes that Jesus gives to the religious leaders in this chapter. I know that's not normally how you would spell woe as in woe, dude. I actually don't know how you would spell woe as in woe, dude, but woe, dude. We're going to uh, knock out the whole chapter, Matthew 23, the whole chapter we're going to handle this morning. We won't read the whole thing to start. Uh, We'll just read the first, uh, I don't know, seven verses to give us a little flavor and we'll get into it. I am reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Matthew 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. Lord, thank you for Bibles open on our laps this morning, on our phones. Thank you for, therefore, the truth that is before us and the truth that is living, active, inerrant, God's very word and God's word to us. And we ask that you would by grace, cause us to receive your word this morning. We place ourselves under the authority of your word. Say that your word is the ultimate authority in the church. We place ourselves under it. We receive it as such. We ask that you would help us to comprehend it and to live it out. Thank you, God, for your incredible love for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your words here to us, to the Pharisees, and again to us as you say things to them that may pertain to us. Help us to hear and receive and obey. Please, Lord, we ask together that you would anoint me with the power of the person of the Holy Spirit that I might preach in a way that is faithful to Jesus and the Bible and helpful to the church. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. What if you had lived your whole life very religiously? What if you had been really concerned from the earliest age, from your earliest memories, until present time, really concerned with doing the right thing, performing the right duties, very religious in your existence. And then one day you stood before God and he said to you, you fool, you missed the whole point of it. That would be a devastating day. That is the day that the Pharisees are having in the text before us. And in giving these woes to the Pharisees that we haven't read yet that we'll get to, Jesus is also speaking to us to save us from the same fate of missing the point about life with God, giving emphasis and and attention to the wrong things, but missing the big picture of God's love. And because Jesus loves these antagonists in the story, he's seeking to draw them in by confronting their inconsistencies and their misunderstandings. He he loves them enough to tell them the truth. 
And the same is true of us today. And it started last week when he had this sort of heavyweight bout with them here on the temple grounds. He's still in the temple grounds now. And the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the Sadducees came to Jesus and, and they wanted to discredit him in front of the people and perhaps endanger him in front of the Roman authorities by getting him to say something unpopular or unpatriotic toward Rome. So they questioned him about morality. They questioned him about the Bible They questioned him about politics, trying to trap him in something that he might say. And we remember from last week that Jesus handled them readily. And he also lovingly turned their attention to the main point. After all their questioning about politics and the Bible and morality, Jesus said, well, yeah, but what about the Messiah? And he wanted them to think deeply on the promises of the Messiah and salvation coming to the world and who he would be and what he would do for Israel. And after trying to draw them into that, he now turns in the text his attention to the crowd that he gathered around and witnessed this heavyweight bout and to the disciples, his disciples that were there. And what he's wanting to do for them because he essentially discredited the religious leaders in front of them. He's wanting to help his disciples know how they should, and the crowd, view then the religious leaders of Israel. Because honestly, those in attendance of the temple that day witnessing this, their equilibrium would have been a little upset. Because forever, for their whole lives, those guys had been the religious authorities in the religious life of Israel. And Jesus just honestly embarrassed them and discredited them in front of everybody. So he's, he's trying to help the people think about how they ought to view now these religious authorities. And in so doing, Jesus has to expose the religious authorities in a way that is a little bit raw and a lot of bit radical. Understanding, of course, as he says some hard things to them today, that he had throughout the Gospels, as we come to the end of the book of Matthew, he had given them every opportunity to see the light, to hear the truth, and to respond to it. And refusing to do so, Jesus will now lovingly humiliate them by telling the truth about them in front of their constituents. Now, he starts out very kindly in verse 2 by first affirming them in the work that they do at least in part. He says in verse 2, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Now I imagine if you're a Pharisee, a Sadducee, or a teacher of the law, and you hear Jesus say that to the crowd, you're like, oh, maybe we didn't just lose that three-round battle. Maybe we did pretty good, because Jesus is now affirming our ministry, our office, and our place in Israel. Jesus said they sit in Moses' seat, which means they carried on the work of Moses of explaining the law of God to the people of God and how they ought to go about observing God's law in their life with God. Moses initiated that as God gave Moses the law and then Moses to the people. And so they have that office now in the life of Israel, helping people understand the Torah, the Old Testament, and how to observe it, how to keep it. And Jesus affirms them in that. He says, this is what they're doing. And so listen very carefully to everything that they say. That's not to say that they got it right all the time. They didn't. 
In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus points out some ways that they had misinterpreted God's law in light of the tradition of the elders, what would become uh, known as the Talmud later on. They gave too much attention to the tradition of the Jewish elders as opposed to the word of God, and Jesus corrected them several times. But in essence, he says, look, these guys are endeavoring to do a good work. I want you to listen to them. That would have been interesting to the crowds and the disciples who just saw this big fight between Jesus and the religious leaders because he really handled them theologically on issues of the Bible, morality, and politics, and the identity of the Messiah. And now he says, but I I want you to listen to them. And then he just like, wham. says in the second part of verse 3, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. The horror of every preacher those words, the accusation of every congregant at one time or another, of hypocrisy. Did you catch that? Did you? Yeah, okay, I'm just kind of kidding on both points. The hypocrisy of the fact that they taught one thing, but they didn't practice what they are teaching. This thing of not practicing what you preach has become a common vernacular within religious life all over the world. Jesus said it first. And hypocrisy, we'll define it a little later in the sermon, will become a recurring theme in this chapter. And then he says, here's what they do. Here's how they don't practice what they preach. In verse 4, he explains. He says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. When he refers to this heavy, cumbersome load, he is talking about the religious leader's interpretation of how Israel was to obey the laws of God. God had given Israel and the Torah in the Old Testament 613 laws. But the Jewish leaders had come up with about 600 million ways that you ought to observe those 613 laws. And quite frankly, made it really complicated and arduous. And piled that on the people saying, you ought to do this. But then we see in the Gospels that there are times where Jesus points out that they themselves, though, had little workarounds. So they put the heavy loads and the expectations on the people, but they themselves had little workarounds. When my family and I were in Israel for three and a half months a couple years ago, we were spending some time with an Orthodox Jewish family in a village high on the mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And we were having a Sabbath meal together. And it came time to do the dishes. And of course, we knew enough, even being the Gentiles we were, that there's no way that this Orthodox Jewish family is going to do any dishes on the Sabbath because it's the Sabbath. And God said, you may not do any work on the Sabbath. And they clearly observed that. Much to our surprise, the wife began to do some dishes. Horrified Gentiles that we were, my wife says to her, wait a minute, you can do dishes on the Sabbath? And she said, well, no. Only if you use the special Sabbath sponge. I'm not kidding. I don't know how that worked out. We didn't ask any further questions. We just kind of... I felt like at that point I got out of doing the dishes. That was enough for me. But they had devised some workaround to this. And the religious leaders were very much the same way. They put heavy loads on people, expecting them to do these things if they were to please God, but they themselves had some loopholes. Now juxtapose that heavy load that the religious leaders put on people to what Jesus said a few chapters before when he said these famous words. Come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Right? Juxtapose that to the teaching ministry of the Pharisees. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus beginning to drip the idea of the gospel and that being what God has provided for the salvation of humanity rather than what humanity endeavors to provide for itself through our own efforts toward righteousness. The heavy yoke and burden of the religious leaders of the day and the light burden and beautiful invitation of Jesus to come be free from the commands and the condemnation, excuse me, not commands, demands of the law and the condemnation that we are under for it. So then he continues to highlight their hypocrisy in verse 5. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. Then he explains some of the things they do. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garment long. They love the place of honor at banquets and most important seats in the synagogues. And they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Now, what in the world is a phylactery? A phylactery was a little leather box that during that time and today, uh, Jews will wear when they're praying on their forehead. And it contained four, sometimes more, varying passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. And they would wear them on their forehead and then also on their forearms. And they would bind them there with bands of leather. It's a rather odd thing. We'll show you a picture of it right now, what it looks like so you get a little visual. There is a, 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 a very standard picture of... Uh, uh, Orthodox Jewish prayer, the prayer shah there, and then you see the big black thing on his forehead? That is the phylactery. It's a little uh, leather box containing some vellum or scrolls, parchment scrolls rolled up with the word of God written on them there. And then you can't really see it very well in this picture, but down on his left hand is another one that he's wearing while, he, while he's praying. Now, the reason that they did this was Noble in my estimation. After all, God had seemed to tell them to do this. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. So maybe what God meant was like, look, I just want you to keep the things I'm telling you in front of you at all times. Right? I want you to talk about them when you're walking down the road. I want you to talk about them when you're in your home. Uh, I want them to be on your heart. Very important, that comes up later in New Covenant language. And maybe it's just figurative. Like, I want them to be right in front of you, you know, right on your, your ear. But then they, they like took that literally, which maybe is the right thing to do. I'm not sure. They said, okay, cool. We're going to put the word of God right here and we're going to put the word of God right here. And they do that during times of prayer. So I don't think it's a bad thing. I actually think it's kind of a cool thing. I think we have a Christian equivalent. Almost every young Christian has a tattoo of a Bible verse somewhere on their body. Very similar idea. What have you got a tattoo right on your forehead so that every time you looked in the mirror, you saw it. That would be similar, but rather more permanent and dramatic. So Jesus said to them, you make your phylacteries wide. 
So remember, he said, everything they do, they do to be seen by people. So they didn't just have the little leather leather box. They got big leather boxes, (laughs) extra large ones. It's like a neck tattoo. It's like super obvious. I get it, bro. You're into that thing. Got it. They like had a giant one on their foreheads. The idea was very American in their mind. I think bigger is better. So if it's good to have this little thing on my forehead, it's got to be really good to have a big old thing. And Jesus already tells us their motives. They were doing it so that people would look at them and be like, oh, wow, you've got a big phylactery on your head. You must be very serious about obeying God. You must be very holy. So that's what they did, but they did it to be noticed by people thinking bigger is better. And then he mentions the tassels. Tassels were little strings of material that hung from the corners of their garments. So that picture we showed you were bigger. You would see that hanging from the corner of that man's garments. And and they did that because of what is written in the book of Numbers. Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations. And they shall put on the tassel, they shall put on the tassel of each corner of a strangely worded, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner and cord of blue. Excuse me. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot. Talking about they're fooling around with other gods. So that you may remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God. So these were visual things that God was giving to his people, just like we have in Christianity. Like the Lord's Supper is a visual thing that we have, right? To remember the cross. Baptism is a visual thing that we have to remember. Death in Christ and life in the spirit. And these were visual things that they had to remember God's word and God's truth. And they would see these tassels on each other. And as they walked, they would kind of rub the end of their fingers and they could feel them perhaps against their legs. And it was meant to be a constant reminder of God's truth and that God was their God and they were to be allegiant and obedient to him. And he says, but what you guys do is you make big old tassels. Again, bigger is better. So they had exaggerated tassels hanging from their clothes, figuring that people would look and say, well, gosh, you must be better than me. You must be holier than me. You must be more serious about God than me because you've got the big phylactery and the big tassels. I'm not as good as you are. They did that so that people might notice. And then they also loved, you know, the prime seats at banqueting tables and the important seats in the synagogues, it says there in one of those verses. The important seat in the synagogue was synagogues during that time were arranged a little bit like this and that at one end of the room, it was always a room that faced Jerusalem, anywhere the synagogue was at in the world, at one end of the room, there was a wooden table from which various rabbis could go up and read from scrolls of scripture and expound on them in the tradition of Ezra in the book of Ezra. And behind that table facing the people were seats. Those were the important seats or the seats of honor. So the important people got to sit behind that table and face the crowd as someone was standing at the table reading and teaching from the word of God. It is as if we had seats up on the stage and the important people at reality sat up here and looked down on you all. (laughs) I know that some churches do that and I find it interesting. The Pharisees loved to do that. And they like to be greeted with respect and called rabbi by others. The main point of what Jesus is saying here is that they loved the admiration and the praises of people. Listen to me. They loved the admiration, attention, and praises of people. We all do. 
There are none of us who are immune to that. They love the admiration and attention and praises of people. But their great sin was that they used devices that were meant to, in the religious life of Israel, draw attention to God and his truth, to draw attention to themselves and their piety. That was a great perversion. They were using devices that God had given Israel to draw attention to God and his truth, to draw attention to themselves and their piety. Now, That is a temptation for all religious people throughout all time. We also are tempted by such things. I've told you guys a story before that one of the first times I ever served the Lord was cleaning up with the coffee ministry at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara when I went to church there. This is about 20 years ago. And I can remember one time carrying a coffee urn from the coffee cart, they called it, down the long hallway to the kitchen. And I saw Pastor Ricky Ryan, who was a pastor at the time, and my pastor walking down the hall toward me. And I just did a few maneuvers around people to make sure that my course intersected with his course so that he saw that I was cleaning up the coffee so I was serious about Jesus. Same thing. Jesus has already told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, this in the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So I got no credit in heaven for cleaning up the coffee ministry at Channel, uh, uh, Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. I had to make it up some other way. That's a temptation for all religious people, and it touches the place of motivation. Am I doing it for the glory of God or for the glory of me? And Jesus expects the people of God and he expects his followers. That's why he's talking to the disciples and the crowds that gathered. He expects us to endeavor to bring glory to God and not ourselves, especially as it pertains to religious activity or our gifts or the ministry that we do. Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, that seems to be a juxtaposition. He said, don't don't do your good works before people so they can see it. And then he says, do your good works before people so that they can see it. The difference is who's seeking and who gets the glory. The difference is in the heart and the motivation of that. And that can be a tricky thing, can it? I am very aware that sometimes I stand in the pulpit and I'm super concerned with the glory of God. Sometimes I stand in the pulpit and I'm super concerned with the glory of Brit. Most of the time, it is a little bit of a mixture. Is that TMI for you? It's too much, too much of a glimpse into my evil heart. I'm sure that you're much better than me. So Jesus continues now in verse eight. He says, but you, okay, that's an adversative clause, meaning he's, I'm using this word again, but in juxtaposition to them, he says to the crowds and his followers, but you, okay, to draw some distinction here. Here's what they're like. They do everything to be noticed by people and for their own glory. And they love the praises of people and to be honored by people, but you, So the but you is but us. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus doesn't want his followers to be like them. 
And he said some rather extreme things in light of that. Listen, I don't want you to call anybody rabbi. I don't want you to call anybody father. I don't want you to call anybody teacher. Because you have one father in heaven. You've got one rabbi, Jesus speaking of himself. You've got one teacher, Jesus speaking of himself. So obviously we can still call our dads, dads, and so on and so forth. Let's not be silly. That's not what Jesus is getting at. He's getting at the point that these people loved titles that exalted themselves and showed them to be superior to others and demonstrated their seriousness in their religious life. And Jesus said, you know what? Let's just nip that in the bud. You guys going forward as my disciples, don't even take on those titles. Just mellow out. You're all brothers and sisters. Serve one another. So he holds up this idea of serving others as the greatest value in the kingdom. The emphasis of exaltation of rabbi, father, teacher is to be on Jesus. The emphasis of exaltation is to be on God. But the place of the believer is to serve one another in humility. What we generally do as people is we seek to be admired and we seek to be served. And we work hard at the admiration thing because we assume, as is right in our culture, if more people admire me and think well of me, then more people will serve me. And after all, who doesn't want to be served? We all do, which is why Jesus became the servant of all, died on the cross, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be given a new heart and new life and new affections and new desires where we say, you know what? Because God so served me in giving his son Jesus to die on the cross for me, I, with my new heart and the power of the Holy Spirit in me, according to the truth of the word, I'm going to live to serve others and not just myself. Because that's how Jesus is. Oh, I forgot my water. I'm sure it'll come to me. Yes, thank you, Ken. Thank you. So then Jesus says these scary words in verse 12. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He says there's two ways that you can go by. You can like seek to build yourself up or you could seek to humble yourselves and God will do the opposite. Humble yourself or God will do it for you. Thank you, Ken. Greatly appreciate it. Pardon me. So he continues then into the woes. And what he's going to do is exactly what he just said. He, as God on earth before the religious leaders, he is going to humble them because they had exalted themselves. We're told in the book of James and we're also told in the Old Testament that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the religious leaders had refused to humble themselves before God incarnate, and now Jesus is going to do it for them. These words that Jesus speaks to them are serious and they are sad. And I don't want us to only make it about them. We love throwing religious stones. So it would be easy for us to say, yeah, Jesus, get them, bad Pharisees. I don't want us to only think about the Pharisees, nor do I want us to do what we often do, think about other people we know in church who very much resemble the Pharisees. Oh, I wish so-and-so were here today. I can't believe they missed this Sunday of all Sundays. They needed to hear this sermon. Oh, I hope so-and-so sitting over there is hearing what's being said right now. Let's not think about others. Let's not make it just about the Pharisees. Let's let the word of God speak to us because don't we have, we will see these same sort of tendencies. So Jesus gives them these seven woes and we ought to discern things in these woes that are for us. Woe, dude, we might say. 
A woe is an expression of pity and compassion. We see it throughout scripture. And a warning of trouble someone is in if they persist in their course. So it is God speaking to these people, pitying them, having compassion on them for the course that they've set for their lives and warning them to relent or repent from that course because it's destructive in their lives before God. It's an expression of pity and compassion and a warning of trouble. We have to realize as Jesus says these things that they do not denote any gladness in the person's fate. Jesus is actually going to tell these guys, listen, you're going to hell. There is not a note of gladness in what Jesus is saying to them. There is rather a desire for a different outcome for their lives because he loves them and he's always been trying to draw them to repentance. By lovingly confronting them with the truth now, it kind of comes to a head here. And again, the recurring theme is hypocrisy. The idea of hypocrisy in the New Testament is playing a part. Actors back then were called hypocrites. They played a part. When Jesus says hypocrites to them in this, it means that he believes them and their religious practices to be insincere. That what they did, they did for its effect on other people watching them and not because deep down they believed it was a way to honor God. They were more concerned with being seen as good than actually doing good. And the seven woes are a study in missing the point. Jesus can tell them, you guys missed the point. So woe one and two are for the wrong direction. They're going in the wrong direction. Now, a technical note. You'll notice if you have the NIV or the NLT or the ESV, that verse 14 is missing. If you have the NASB, uh, verse 14 is still in there. The reason being, verse 14 is not found in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Bible. So that is one of those rare verses in Scripture that is disputed. Does it belong here or is that from elsewhere? Was that misplaced at some time? Uh, Not to worry because the content of it, which in essence uh, has Jesus warning the Pharisees against their taking advantage of vulnerable people, vulnerable people and praying just to be noticed by people is found also in Mark chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 20 in the parallel passages. So the content is true. The things that Jesus said, we know he said, we just don't know from ancient manuscripts that verse 14 should be a Matthew right here or not. So we're just going to read 13 and 15 and see these first two woes that have to do with them going in the wrong direction. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourself do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Not a note of joy in Christ's voice as he says these very difficult things to them. In verse 13, when he says that to them, they shut the door on the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying simply, you have opposed my ministry from day one. I came announcing, explaining, demonstrating, and actually brought the kingdom of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
and you have been opposing that. So you're keeping people from entering eternal life, from entering into God's reign and rule, experiencing God's purpose for them. The whole thing that you're supposed to be concerned about, you're missing the point. You're keeping people from it and you yourself do not enter. And you guys work so hard to get one convert, travel over land and sea is that colloquialism. You'll go over land and sea to make one convert. When you do, you make them twice as much a child of hell. Meaning... You teach them to try to earn their own righteousness before God by keeping the law rather than relying upon what God has done for them in the giving of the Messiah. Twice as much a child of hell because the law only ever shows us to be bad. The law of God was never given so that we might look at it and say, hey, look, dude, I'm good. I'm a little bit better than you. I'm pretty good. The law only ever always shows us to be bad. So if someone's paradigm is, I'm going to be good to earn my way to heaven, they become twice as much a child of hell, trying to earn their own righteousness. Now the next woes are connected. Woe three, the next woe, is for wrong affections. We start reading in verse 16. Woe to you blind guides, right? They're leading the people in the wrong direction. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Now, those words may seem a little obscure and strange to us, but the uttering of oaths, the, 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 the swearing, swearing not as in using profane language, but saying, I swear to do thus and so, was very popular in that culture at the time. And you would swear by the most valuable thing that was sort of in your existence. We actually do have an equivalent. I'm sure it's very juvenile. Juvenile. We probably heard it in school when we were kids. But someone would be lying to us and they'd say, dude, I swear on my mother's grave. It's true. And you're like, ah, don't, don't swear on your mother's grave. Like, that's a sacred thing, right? The idea, whether we realize it or not, is being like, gosh, the the most sacred thing in my life would ever be my mother's grave because mom is the most awesome human in the universe. And mom's grave, I would never do anything to defile mom's grave. Therefore, if I say I swear on my mother's grave, you know for sure that I'm not lying. That's the idea. And so they had the practice of keeping, making oaths and doing it by something that was solemn and important to them. And so they taught people, here's what you should do. You should say, I swear by the gold that is in the temple or I swear by the sacrifice that is in the altar, on the altar. And Jesus says, you idiots. The gold that is in the temple is only meaningful because it is in the temple. You have missed the point. You've made it about these other trappings. You've made it about the human work of putting in the gold rather than God's work of creating a house of worship. Same thing with the sacrifices. You tell the people you should swear by the sacrifice on the altar because that's sacred and holy and really important. Jesus says, you fools. The altar is what makes the sacrifice sacred. Here's why. The sacrifice is what you brought. The altar is what God has placed for you to have a way for the atonements of sin. He says to them, you guys are falling into emphasizing the wrong things. 
a human emphasis, a human um, uh, giving attention to human efforts rather than what God has provided for you. That's what he's getting at with him. Now, we can fall into similar things, right? The gold versus the temple, the gift versus the altar. We can make it all about like the stuff we do. We can make it all about the clothes that we wear to church, the different ways that we serve, the different experiences of worship, all these wrong focuses. Rather than making church and the gathering of God's people all about Jesus, which is the altar and the temple that God has provided for us. Woe to us, for we make it greatly about our needs and how they might be met and our reputation and our stuff and our experience and the temperature of the AC and our parking spaces and all these other things. When it's all about what God has provided for us, Christ himself is the altar. Christ himself is the temple. Christ himself, in other words, is the only way to God. So when we come to church, we're supposed to make it all about Jesus. And the only way to come to God is through Jesus and what he's done for us, not any self-efforts. New Testament parallel, Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, who was very religious and also found out that he missed the point when he stood before Jesus. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Speaking about things, religious stuff. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So Paul reminds us that the whole of the gospel is not about what we can do to earn favor before God or appear good before God, but rather what God has done for us in giving his son to die in our place and rise from the dead that we might have new life. And I think we get that on a grand scale, like, oh, yep, that's the gospel, got that, no problem, Rick, can we move on to second grade now? But I think that we often make our Christian lives about what we do and can do rather than what God has done for us and what God can do. Woe for is for the wrong conclusions. Again, connected ideas here. Verse 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow the camel. So he says to them, look, you guys give very careful attention to the small details of the keeping of the Mosaic law. You're, You're very concerned about the letter of the law. But you don't give attention to the big ideas or the main points of the law, the spirit of the law. Jesus already said in his last confrontation with his Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders that the whole point of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we do that, then we will be concerned about things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. But they had the wrong conclusions. They thought, well, if I do these little things, then I'm probably okay on the big things. And Jesus says, you know what God expects? He expects both. 
I'm not telling you not to tithe. I am telling you to tithe. But I'm telling you also to have mercy and to pursue justice and faithfulness to God and to one another. Not either or, both and. But they found, as I think we find, that it's easier in life to do menial, tangible things than to do the big things of like loving, unlovable people. And we often miss the point. So New Testament equivalent, a reminder from Colossians 3. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. So the big picture, the main point, it's not that we don't have to do some of the smaller things, so to speak, but we're not to miss the big point, which is what Jesus is getting at. Woes 5 and 6 are for the wrong emphasis. Again, connected, verses 25 through 28. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Oh, man. Not a whiff of joy in Christ as he delivers to them these difficult and exposing and humiliating words. He says to them they have the wrong emphasis. They put all the emphasis on external observances, but they ignore the inward reality, the condition of the heart. They might be obeying in some ways, but again, they are missing the point. Now, here's the right emphasis from Psalm 119, the right emphasis. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. Not just may I feel the letter of the law and just do A, B, and C, D, but would my heart, God, be in it? Right? That's a, that's a, that's a good prayer. Now, I want to remove the excuse that many of us have as Christians, especially when it comes to our sexuality and our money. We think, well, if my heart is not in it, then it excuses me from doing it. Jesus didn't say that. He's not teaching that at all. We think, well, I really love this person, therefore my my sexual stuff with them is okay, or this is the way I feel about it. My heart's just not there, so I'm not going to go that way, or I don't feel joy when I'm giving to the Lord, so why should I do it? I'll wait for my heart to catch up with the right thing to do. You might be waiting a long time. The Bible says, watch over your heart with all diligence. So if your heart is in dissonance with the word of God, guess what needs to move? Our hearts. So this becomes a prayer. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, Lord. Would I want to obey you, God, for your glory from a deep place of reverence, the fear of the Lord, because of the love of God? The problem with hearts is this. And Jesus was saying, that which proceeds out of the mouth of man is that which defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornifications, thefts, murders, adulteries, 
deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus confronts the idea that humanity is basically good and says, no, humanity is essentially bad. And that silly little phrase that we have in the world, I'm just following my heart. (laughs) Better not, dude. This is the way it's going to go. That's the problem. Unless, of course, we come to Jesus for new life. The solution that God told to Israel in the Old Testament, his covenant with them, which we are grafted into by grace, is this, Jeremiah. This is a covenant which I will make with the house, of the, Lord, the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. Reverberated in the book of Ezekiel, new covenant again. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your sorry, a little tongue-tied today, filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Someone say, thank you, God. And put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, meaning soft and supple and alive to God. I will put my spirit within you. Someone say, thank you, God. And cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That is the hope that we have in Christ. That is what Christ was trying to get across to the crowds and his disciples and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. He wanted to remind them of the covenant that he was making with Israel, this new covenant. The night before Christ was crucified, he held up the cup and he said, this cup is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. It is the new covenant and the same of his body broken. Christ is the one who made the new covenant with us for the forgiveness of sins. And then we know that if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. We get new hearts, new desires, God's spirit in us. Now we know that until glory, there's a bit of a battle, right? With the new heart that we have and the flesh and God's spirit in us and the flesh. So we utter this ancient prayer from Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. In this lifetime, we are still going to struggle with right and wrong, our desires and God's desires for us. So that is a prayer that we pray. God, search my heart. That's what we ought to do when we come to church on a Sunday in response to the Lord, the second set of worship. Lord, search my heart. Man, I heard this message. Britt was speaking fast. He spoke for 50 minutes. He said a ton of things. He was all over his words. I don't know what he said, but Lord, search my heart. My heart is yours. You've given me a new heart. Your spirit is in me. Your word is reverberating in my heart. Lord, show me the right way I, go, I ought to go. Woe seven, the final, set, the final woe is for wrong assessment. Verses 29 through 33. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. That was gnarly. He's talking about their plot to kill him. Then he says in verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, 
How will you escape being condemned to hell? Not a whiff of joy in the heart of our Lord as he communicates these difficult, fearful, sobering things to them. Woe's evidence for the wrong assessment. That is to say, their assessment of themselves was better than their assessment of others. They esteemed themselves to be better than other people. They said, well, yeah, look, the, 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 the Jews that came before us, they killed the prophets, but if we were there, we would have known better. We never would have done it. All the while, Jesus knows that in their hearts is a plot to kill him. Listen, we always assess ourselves wrongly in view of others. We either assess ourselves too well in view of someone else or not well in view of someone else. Our whole culture is built on comparison. That's why women look the way they do in magazines and on TV. That's why men have the things that they have and the reputation and the jobs. Our entire culture is built on counting that you live out of comparison. That is satanic. If we live from a place of comparison, we will always miss the mark. We will do what we need to do in the moment. We will build ourselves up and find someone that's worse than us to make ourselves feel better and over-assess, or we will see someone that's better and so live under this pressure and this turmoil that we don't live up. And only the gospel saves us from those things because when we come to Jesus, we become the beloved sons and daughters of God, and that is our identity so that we are saved from having to form false identities about what I do better or what I've done worse. We are bad, only ever bad. God already told you that. But we are loved, always and forever loved. Jesus demonstrated that by dying on the cross for us so that we might become the beloved daughters and sons of God so that our identities are secure and we are freed from false self-assessments. My God, help us get this in the church and in culture. The freedom that would come to our children, our teenagers, the freedom that we would experience in our habits and our finances. In so many ways, if we would just accept our identity as beloved in Christ before God. Galatians 6 warns against false self-assessments and says, brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in any sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Well, watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they're deceiving themselves. Comparison. Each one should test their own actions, right? Stop comparing. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry his own load. We are all responsible before God. And man, our sin always looks, looks worse on someone else. Jesus says to them that they are actually just as bad as those they were accusing of being bad, their descendants. And then he says in verse 34 that they'll prove it. Verse 34, he says, Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers, Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. He's talking about what's going to happen in the book of Acts and subsequent in history. I've been reading the book of Acts very carefully lately and that's exactly what's happening. The apostles, the disciples are going forth and the religious leaders arrest them, flog them, even kill some of them. Stephen, Acts chapter 7. So Jesus says, you guys are just going to prove how bad you are in the coming years. 
almost done, verses 35 and 36. And so upon you, what Jesus is doing now, excuse me, is announcing judgment. They're not hearing what he's saying. Nobody's repenting. Nobody's falling down. Nobody's saying, I'm sorry, Lord, show me the right way. He announces judgment. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah to the son of Berechiah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Abel was the first innocent killed in scripture by Cain, book of Genesis. The Hebrew Bible is organized, the Bible that Jesus would have read and they would have known, the Hebrew Bible is organized so that Second Chronicles is the last book. We have it as Malachi. They organize it differently in Second Chronicles. And the story Jesus alludes to there, the killing of Zechariah happened in Second Chronicles. So Jesus says, you guys are guilty of missing the point from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Jesus does two things there. He affirms the validity, the truth, the relative, the relativity. What's the word I'm looking for? The relevance. Thank you very much. The relevance of the Old Testament. Jesus says the whole thing is God's word and therefore you're responsible to the whole thing. And in what you guys are doing, you're actually guilty of the whole thing from Abel to Zechariah. That's a heavy, heavy statement. He put the whole load of the law on them. We stand in the same place unless we come to Christ for forgiveness because we too are rebels against God. We too are guilty of the whole truth of God's law unless we come to Jesus for forgiveness. They were culpable of the whole revelation of God because Jesus, who is the fulfillment and the fullness and the final revelation of God stands right before them. Hope that you guys will get in that Bible study that we're offering in the book of Hebrews coming up starting, I think, this week. The book of Hebrews is perhaps the most rich New Testament book, incredible book. It starts with this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is a radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And there was Jesus, the exact representation of God in all of his glory standing before these men and they did not repent. So Jesus pronounces judgment. If we refuse to repent, then there's only judgment. And after pronouncing judgment, Jesus then in love expresses regret that they had not responded to his loving efforts. We finish with verses 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The last phrase is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. Jesus had come already to them to seek and save that which was lost. They refused. They were not willing. So here's why I want to end. I want us as we enter into worship now to have these questions in our mind about ourselves. Leave the Pharisees behind. They already got theirs. Let's think about ourselves now and these tendencies in us, these questions. Where is Jesus looking to gather you under his wings of love and where are you unwilling? Whenever Jesus calls us to obedience, he's always looking to gather us under his covering, under his love. Where do you have false identities? 
Where do you have false affections, false conclusions and assumptions? Where is Jesus looking to bring you into truth, into his love, into his covering, but you're unwilling, right? Those little places of rebellion where we don't want to come under the authority and truth of Jesus. And the next question, are you able to recognize, do you see places where your house is being left desolate because of your refusal to come under the loving authority of Jesus? I want us to think real hard on that one. You know, because we do not sin in a vacuum. Our sin affects others. It affects our husbands. It affects our wives. It affects our children. It affects those around us. And often our rebellion, our refusal to come under Jesus' authority leaves places of desolation in our own houses, so to speak. I want us to think about those things as we enter into worship. And I, I want us to realize this that Jesus had done everything he could to gather, to care for rebellious Jerusalem, even in the midst of their rebellion. Because Jesus loves sinful rebels like us. And he wants us to know his love, forgiveness, and and compassion. So in your rebellion today, don't run from Jesus, run to Jesus. We often run from Jesus in our rebellion. That's the way of desolation. Run to Jesus, repent before him, and let him begin to heal you and us. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the hope of this text. We ask very simply, Lord, that you would lead us in the way we ought to go now. Holy Spirit, help us to hear where, Jesus, you want to gather us and bring us into your loving care. Help us to discern where we are unwilling. And Holy Spirit, help us to see places where we are making our own homes, our lives desolate because of our rebellion. Jesus, if there's anyone here today who has not repented of their sins and put their faith in you for forgiveness, we ask together that they would do it today. That they would say in their hearts, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, I'm a rebel, and I need forgiveness. Thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. Be my Lord and Savior. And as they pray that, Jesus, would you fill them with love and grace and mercy? Would they know that they have become the beloved daughters and sons of God? Would they know that they are made brand new? Would they experience the love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit and have new resurrected life? Thank you that, Jesus, you lift burdens today of our failures. Lead us, Holy Spirit, now in the way we ought to respond.